0: This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 104. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 56 through 59 and follow with a consideration of memorials, messaging, and marches. This last segment of Deutero-Isaiah, starting here in chapter 56 through the concluding chapter 66, forms a distinct unit. Scholars argue that these final ten chapters and their prophecies were uttered in the land of Israel after the return to Zion, when the exuberance over the dedication of the second temple in 515 BCE began to wane. The reconstruction of Jerusalem's walls were completed, but nonetheless, the residents of the cities were demoralized. We know this because there are numerous references in this concluding section to the completed wall and the temple as a fait accompli, and there are also references to tension between the Jerusalemites and the indigenous locals. In this section also, there are many heady rebukes of the people. We got a little taste from deutero Yeshayahu in previous chapters, but here, deutero Yeshayahu straight up accuses the people of engaging in idolatry and fake sacrifices which led some scholars to argue that this final section comes from a third Yeshayahu or trito Yeshayahu who did not get enough coffee in the morning before heading out for work chapter 56 begins with talk of the shabbat
1: shabbat <laughs>
0: Shabbat is probably the oldest, most deeply rooted commandment in all of the Torah. It is alluded to as part of the process of creation in Genesis when God rests on the seventh day, and it is the only holy day mentioned in the Ten Commandments. In a sense, the latter is justified based on the former. We keep Shabbat according to the Ten Commandments because God kept it. But there is also a social justice component as well where we rest as well as our servants and our pack animals, which also ties into the slavery experience in Egypt. Rest is a human right. Shabbat is defined by refraining from work, but the Torah does not necessarily specify what work is in the Shabbat context. That would be left to the rabbis and commentators of later generations to tease out. Deutero-Yeshayahu, or shall we shift to Trito-Yeshayahu, encourages the people to keep Shabbat, even the foreigners and eunuchs who live in the land. This is especially nice for the eunuchs, because being unable to reproduce, they will essentially be forgotten in history. But if they hold fast to God's covenant, quote, I will give them in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which shall not perish. All are welcome to become part of God's covenant, keeping Shabbat and coming to the temple and near offering. But then there's a shift in tone in Trido Yeshayahu to a colorful image of a neglected herd whose watchmen are blind, whose guard dogs are unable to bark, and the shepherds themselves are looking to get drunk. The wild beasts will surely have their way. Now, is this a parable about the present moment, about a people whose protections and leaders are ineffectual against the coming threat, or is this a reference to the past? It's really not clear. Chapter 57 is arguably the harshest dig at the Jewish people in all of the book of Isaiah. The language Trado Yeshayahu uses, as well as the kind of sins he describes, are terrible. The people are described as, quote, sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a harlot, children of iniquity and offspring of treachery. In other words...
1: You're you... god... You're... such a bad person. Like, all the way through to your core.
0: And the sins the people have committed are...
1: Bad, 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 bad,
0: bad. bad. That's right, the worst kind of idolatry. Quote, you who inflame yourselves among the terebents under every verdant tree, who slaughter children in the wadis among the clefts of the rocks. And then there's all the near offering in high places, the libations, the lust, the dabbling with, well, I'm not even going to say it. It's just bad. And perhaps Trada Yeshayahu is exaggerating just how bad it is. I mean, were the Jews of that time from roughly 520 through 450 BC really into all that stuff? We don't know. The other sources from that time, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, don't reference child slaughter. But then again, Ezra does initiate deep, profound religious reforms. So perhaps the Jews were not killing their children, but perhaps they were doing other stuff that was bad, but not as bad. And God's not having any of it. Those that follow the idols, quote, they shall all be borne off by the wind, snatched away by a breeze. In short, the wicked will perish, and the righteous will be redeemed. Right? Trader Yeshayahu is not done. Chapter 58 begins another round of condemnation. This time the people are hypocrites and superficially faithful. They call out to God, quote, Why, even when we fasted, did you not see? When we starved our bodies, did you not pay heed? Fasting has a number of functions in Jewish tradition. There are official fast days, like Yom Kippur, where Leviticus says, quote, you are to afflict yourselves. There are also days of fasting that are declared as an expression of public mourning, or to ward off tragedy. In this instance, it seems that the fasting in question was a personal act of contrition.
1: Can't we eat? I'm so hungry I could ride a horse. I don't get it. Well, I could ride it to the store, I guess.
0: And the people are pissed. Here we fasted and did our thing, and you, God, didn't do your thing. You didn't save us. Same kind of instrumentalist thinking was in play during the period of the first temple when people near offered with the same mindset. Here, God, here's my animal. Now fix it. It was this kind of behavior that Yeshayahu ben Amoz railed against in the beginning of this book and tried out Yeshayahu Knox here too. Quote, you fast in strife and contention. You think just because you fast on a Monday that you can carry on sinning on a Tuesday? It doesn't work like that. And just like the prophets rejected the sacrifice as proxy for real tshuva, real repentance, try to Yeshayahu does the same here. Who needs this fast? Quote, no, this is the fast I desire, to unlock the fetters of wickedness and untie the cords of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break off every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry and to take the wretched poor into your home when you see the naked, to clothe him and not to ignore your own kin. If you do that, then when you call, God will answer. Chapter 59 returns to this theme of the sinner and God, but from multiple perspectives. First, verses 1 through 3, the prophet speaks to the people, quote, your iniquities have been a barrier between you and your God. Shifting in verse 4 to third person, the prophet speaking generally, quote, No one sues justly or pleads honestly. They rely on emptiness and speak falsehood. Then in verse 9, the people speak, quote, That is why redress is far from us, and vindication does not reach us. Which shifts, again in verse 12, to the people speaking directly to God, quote, For our many sins are before you. Then, verse 13, back to the prophet speaking generally, quote, Rebellion, faithlessness to the Lord, and turning away from our God. And he continues to speak of a God for God until verse 21, when God finally speaks, quote, and this shall be my covenant with them, said the Lord. This chapter, however, follows the usual trajectory. Condemnation, followed by lamentation and contrition, and praise to God who strikes out at his enemies. The condemnation, however, is rather general because the sins mentioned are almost stereotypic. You know, the usual hands defiled by crime, lips tainted by lies, yada, yada, yada. But the conclusion is very specific. Quote, my spirit, which is upon you and the words which I have placed in your mouth shall not be absent from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your children, nor from the mouth of your children's children, said the Lord from now for all time. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. The eunuch is by definition childless, and as such cannot outlast his own lifetime. His name dies with him. Tredo Yeshayahu, as I said earlier, has a lot of harsh words for sinners and hypocrites and such. Actually has some nice words for the eunuch as consolation if they hold fast to God's covenant, quote, I will give them in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which shall not perish. This monument and a name, or this phrase, Yad Vashem, provided the name for Israel's Holocaust memorial site and museum. Eight years after the end of World War II and the Shoah, and five years after the establishment of the State of Israel, Israel's parliament, the Knesset, passed the Holocaust and Heroism Remembrance Law. This law established Yad Vashem as the official state memorial authority, whose purpose was, quote, to gather into the homeland the memory of all those of the Jewish people who fell and gave their lives, fought and rebelled because of their belonging to the Jewish people. Yad Vashem would also gather testimony and, quote, pass on its lessons to the people to, quote, implant among the nation the day determined by the Knesset as Memorial Day for the Holocaust and heroism and to foster, quote, an experience of united memory of its heroes and victims. During the debate over this law in 1952, members of Knesset alluded to what would become Yad Vashem as a place for the gathering of the memories of the Hurban, or destruction, in lieu of the Western Wall, the last remnant of the Second Temple, which was in Jordanian hands at the time. And it would be situated adjacent to the military cemetery on Mount Herzl, where the association would be clear. All those that fell here and there were on a mission. Mount Herzl was founded in 1949. It is Israel's largest military cemetery and the burial site for the nation's founders. Originally, Menachem Ussishkin, a prominent Zionist leader in Palestine in the 1930s, organized the reinterment of Leon Pinsker, another early Zionist, in Nicanor Cave on Mount Scopus. The idea was to create a Zionist pantheon there for the leaders of the nation and a site of pilgrimage. But when the war of independence ended and Mount Scopus was cut off from the rest of Jerusalem, an alternative site, the highest point in Jewish-held Jerusalem was selected. Herzl's tomb sits atop the mountain. Nearby is the chelkat Doleha Uma, which translates, I guess, as the plot of the great leaders of the nation. Many of Israel's prime ministers, their spouses, and Israel's presidents are interred there, as well as the first speaker of the Knesset, the first minister of finance, and Jerusalem's mayor, Teddy Kolek. Revisionist ideologue Zev Jabotinsky is also buried on Mount Herzl, but not in the great leaders section. He's kind of a little ways away. Long story behind that. I won't get into that now. On the eastern flank of the hill, closest to the residential neighborhoods of Yefenov and Kfar Shaul, is the military cemetery. The 4,000-plus tombstones are grouped on terraces, according to the wars or actions in which the soldiers fell. All the tombstones are of equal size and unadorned, evoking camaraderie and solidarity. Military cemeteries are are unlike battle sites. The cemetery is consecrated by the bodies of the dead. The battle site, on the other hand, is consecrated by the blood of the fallen. But the memorial is neither. The victims of the Shoah did not die at Yad Vashem and they are buried nowhere. Yad Vashem also faces away from the city on the western side of the hill. So even though the entrance to Yad Vashem is about 135 meters or so away from Mount Herzl, up until 2003, there was no direct access from one site to the other. You would have to retrace your steps, exit the cemetery, then follow a path through the woods or an iron gate flanked by the carob trees, which were planted for the righteous Gentiles that marks the perimeter of Yad Vashem. This changed in 2003 a linking path was created, called the Path of Resurrection. It was constructed by members of Israel's youth movements and was opened on April 22nd, 2004, midway between Holocaust Remembrance Day and Israel Independence Day, on the 60th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. The event is marked each year with a march of approximately 1,500 young people from the Valley of the Communities, a map maze of Europe, past the original cattle car monument, thus exiting Yad Vashem and passing through the Iron Gate and the new linking path up to Mount Herzl, where the Netzer Acharon, or Last of Kin monument, is located. This memorial, this new memorial, commemorates 275 survivors of the Shoah who were enlisted upon arrival in Palestine into the IDF to fight in the War of Independence. They fell in battle and with them, the last of kin perished. This memorial in the shape of an empty stone house frame with a flat monument in the shape of the interior of the house lying alongside it, represents not only the transition between Yad Vashem and Mount but also the transition between Shoah and Tkuma, rebirth, as well as from victim to soldier. I'll put up a link to the accompanying website, where one can find more information about the 275 memorialized fighters. The site, alas, is in Hebrew. Countless thousands of Israeli teens over the past 70 years were taken to places like Telchai, where warrior hero Yosef Trumpledor actually fell at the hands of perfidious Arabs, but not before declaring either Tov Lamut Ba'ad Arzenu, which means it's good to die for our country, or Yovtvoi Umat, which I won't translate from the Russian, or perhaps they were taken to Latrun, which was the site of key battles against Jordanian forces in 1948, 1967. Or maybe they would go to Masada, where the Sicarii holdouts preferred mass murder and suicide in 73 CE rather than enslavement at the hands of the Romans. These sites, these historic sites, are authentic and archaeological and especially in the case of Masada, they require some effort to get to. In stark contrast, the events commemorated by the Netzer Acharon monument did not happen on site. No amount of archaeology will change that. And it's a pretty quick climb. And in contrast to the, say, march of the living, which is a lot longer, involves a lot more logistics and cost, the Netzer Acharon procession is shorter and much, much cheaper. But it still delivers the goods. The path from a doomed and dying exile to Israel is simulated and reenacted, and in so doing, the homeland is recharged with the energy of youth, significance, and longing. In a sense, it is fitting that this memorial for the last of kin, the proverbial eunuchs, made familyless by the Shoah and childless by the War of Independence, are given an everlasting name by sons and daughters through a tradition that, for as long as there is a state of Israel, will not perish.
1: If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out Tanakhcast. Or like Tanakhcast at the show pages on Facebook or Google Plus. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or, if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your Shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 105. When we continue in the Book of Isaiah with chapter 60 through 63.